Father, we come to you as your children in need of your great blessing and of your word. We ask that you give us eyes to see the things not seen and open our hearts to your word. We thank you that you've memorialized it for us, that we may study it thousands of years after you recorded it. We thank you that you had us personally in mind before the creation of the world. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, and we ask that you teach us by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen in the book of 1 Samuel, where we are in the book, David is on the run because King Saul is jealous of him. King Saul views him as a threat. And so King Saul is hunting him to try and kill him. In chapter 21, we saw that David went to the priests at Nob for help. He went there and he got help by, by making up a story. He made up a story that he was on a secret mission from the king, and so he asked for provisions from the priests at Nob. They accommodated him because they thought that he was there on an errand from the king, and they accommodated him with bread and with the sword of the Philistine Goliath whom David had killed some time earlier. Then David fled from Nob and went to the Philistine city of Gath. He was immediately recognized, and so he feigns insanity. He acts like he's mad in order to escape the situation there in Gath. Last time we saw verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22. Let me review those verses, and I'll just add a few more things that we didn't have an opportunity to talk about last time. Chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, verse 1, reads like this. So David departed from there, from Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. So everyone who's connected with David is in danger. The whole family joins David in hiding. His parents and his brothers... You remember his brothers, right? I mean, the the oldest brother, Eliab, he berated David when David showed up at the battlefield in chapter 17. Eliab, we we, we read in, in verse 28 of chapter 17 that Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. In other words, Eliab, the oldest brother of David, the oldest son of Jesse, Eliab was saying, David, you just showed up here at the battle that, 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 that we've been having with the Philistines. It's, it's been a 40-day standoff, and you've just shown up just for some entertainment. Go back to the sheep where you belong, because Eliab, the older brother of David, viewed him with contempt. So now what we're seeing in chapter 22 of verse 1 of 1 Samuel, what we're seeing is that now in the cave, Eliab is under the protection of his baby brother, who says God doesn't have a sense of humor, right? Eliab, the older brother, is now under the protection of David, and they have reconciled. I don't know if Eliab ate some humble pie or how they reconciled, but I suspect that David was very gracious. 
David cares for his family unlike Saul, right? Saul seeks to kill his child. Saul sought to kill his oldest son, Jonathan, on multiple occasions so far in the text. And with respect to his daughter, Michal, he used her as a pawn to draw in David so that Saul could try and kill David. Keep reading in verse 2 of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. It reads like this. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, gathered to David, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. This is a ragtag motley crew that is collecting around David. These are not the elites. These are not the powerful These are not the sophisticated. These are the nobodies. God has called the nobodies to himself. And what God does is he uses nobodies to elevate his name. And the way he does that is he elevates the nobody who submits to him. And by elevating the nobody and, and raising the nobody, then God raises his own name. Because God exalts the humble, and he humbles the exalted. He is opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. In the process of elevating the nobody, he elevates his great name. Not because the nobodies are worthy, but because God and God alone is worthy. And as you read verse 2, you can't help but think about how the son of David calls the 12, right? The 12 disciples who are not powerful religious elites. They're not from Jerusalem where they have the, the, the rabbis and there's the great training and there's the temple and there's all the sophisticated power and authority in Jerusalem. Most of the 12 are from Galilee. I mean, that's the backwater part of Israel. Nothing could, good comes from that area. I should say many of the 12 are from Galilee. And so... They're the part of Israel that, 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 that the sophisticated in Jerusalem would scoff at. That's why they can't believe Messiah. They can't, one of the reasons they can't believe that Jesus is Messiah is because he's from Galilee, of all places. Please, Messiah didn't come from Galilee. That's the backwater place. And Jesus calls fishermen perfectly ordinary and unforgettable. Fishermen. And in fact, one of the disciples is the scum of all the scum. Matthew, he's a tax collector. I mean, tax collectors. It'd be like God calling an IRS agent to be a pastor. Or worse, a lawyer to be a pastor. I mean, the scum of the scum. Right? But God has a great sense of humor. He's got a great sense of humor. And Paul also speaks of how God uses the son of David to call the nobodies to himself. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul speaks to the Corinthian believers, and he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. 
But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. There's the son of David, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, then Paul quotes from the Hebrew Bible, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I should be clear that sometimes, sometimes God does call the elites. Sometimes God does call from the mighty and from the wise and from the noble. A very wealthy woman in the 1700s who was part of the British nobility said this well. Her name was the Countess of Huntington. She was very wealthy, and she was one of the backers of George Whitfield, who was a well-known preacher in England and in the American colonies. It was reported that the Countess once said, I was saved by the letter M. I was saved by the letter M. Look at the words on the screen. Look at verse 26. Do you see what she means? I was saved by the letter M. She says the text in chapter 1, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians does not say, not any mighty or any noble were called. It says not many, the letter M. Not many, not many mighty, and not many noble. And so sometimes God does call from the noble, from the mighty. Her point was, God is full of surprises. God is full of surprises. And in our context here in 1 Samuel, you see God calling not from the extraordinary, but from the ordinary. That's what God is doing in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2. These 400 men are the broken ones. They're the ones who are in distress, in debt, and discontented. Look at verse 3. And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. The Moabites were enemies of Israel, just like the Philistines were. So the king of Moab is probably delighted to help David because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And David is the enemy of Saul. At least Saul treats David that way, although David never treated Saul that way and won't treat Saul that way. Through God's providence, God is providing familial support, support through David's family, because David, David's great-grandmother, as we've seen, was a Moabitess, Ruth. And through his providence, God is also providing political support through the king of Moab, who is happy to help someone who is considered the enemy of Saul. Keep reading in verse 4. Then he left them with the king of Moab, David did, and they stayed with him all the time, all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. That forest is located in Judah. We're not exactly sure where it's located in Judah, but it is in Judah. Now we get to our passage for today, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to see the paranoia and the brutality, the murderous rage of Saul. We'll see that no one is safe under Saul's reign. Verse 6, Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. 
Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the Teramesk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. This image of Saul, of the king with his spear in his hand, is disturbing. It reminds us of the king's volatile and violent tendencies. In the past, he has used the spear to try and kill David multiple times and to even try and kill his own son, Jonathan. Keep reading in verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to you all the fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? The king hates David so much he can't even bring himself to utter his name. It just won't come off of his tongue. So he calls him the son of Jesse. In his paranoia about David, he thinks that those who are in his court are conspiring with David. He calls them Obenjamites. Apparently, the king has lost support from the other 11 tribes. And apparently it's only his own tribe. Remember, Saul is a Benjamite himself. Apparently it's only his own tribe that are still supporting him. Saul is a terrible king, and the people know it. His words in verse, 17, or in verse 7 are fulfillment of God's warning from chapter 8, where God warned that a king like all the nations, remember that's what the people wanted, give us a king like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. The Israelites said in chapter 8, and God warned them, you sure about that? And then God gave them what they wanted. Sometimes that's the worst of all punishments, God giving us what we want because sometimes we want things that are totally contrary to God's will. And so in chapter 8, God warned them that a king like all the nations would engage in political patronage. That's what you're seeing here in verse 7, patronage. God warned them that a king like that, like all the nations, would take from the people, and then he would give to his cronies, to his political cronies. Chapter 8, verse 14, God warned them that a king like that would take productive fields and vineyards and give them to his officials. That's what Saul is offering to the Benjamites here. God warned them in chapter 8, verse 12, that a king like that, like all the nations, would appoint his cronies as officers in the military. That's what Saul is saying. Saul's saying, look, You know where your bread is buttered. You Benjamites, you know who's going to take care of you, who is taking care of you. I'm I'm telling you, if you support me, you're going to get the vineyards. I've already taken the vineyards from the people. Don't worry about that. I got the vineyards. I got control of the power. I'm going to take care of you. You need to support me. You need to look out for me. And David, who's from the tribe of Judah, he's not going to look out for you like your sugar daddy is. I'm your sugar daddy, and I'm going to give you the vineyards and the land and high positions in the military, in, in, in the ranks of the military. You just need to take care of me. This is, this is political patronage that we're seeing here. Saul has to lure his followers with bribery. David offers... Nothing. David offers no goodies to the people who follow him. In fact, they follow him in a cave. They follow him and they live in a forest. They follow him in hardship. David offers something that Saul likes. I, I, I should correct what I said just a moment ago. David offers them nothing of physical, material, monetary value. 
like productive vineyards or, or high positions in the military where you command hundreds or thousands. David offers them something that is intangible. David offers them something that is much more valuable than the material, physical world. David offers them honor. Honor. David is an honorable, honorable man. He's not perfect, but he is an honorable man. This is what happens when you seek the Lord. When you seek the Lord, it impacts your character. It molds and crafts your character. When you seek the Lord, remember David is a man, the text describes a man after the Lord's own heart. That creates a byproduct in the person who seeks the Lord. Byproduct. Maybe, maybe the better way to say it is a direct product in the person who seeks the Lord. It creates a product of honor and integrity. That's who David is, a man of character. The reason Saul attracts opportunists is because Saul is an opportunist. And we will see one of these opportunists here in a little bit. Keep reading in verse 8. For Saul keeps speaking. For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. Boo-hoo-hoo. This is what Saul is saying. He, he has this attitude of feeling sorry for himself. In his paranoia, he thinks that everyone is after him, including those who are in his court, including the Benjamites of his own tribe. He even thinks that his own son is after him. He thinks Jonathan is in cahoots with David, not to help David escape from Saul murdering David, but that Jonathan is in cahoots with David to ambush Saul, to kill Saul, but in reality, no one's after Saul. Saul flatters himself way too much. No one is after him. Not David, not Jonathan, none of them. Saul's instability and fear has made him delusional. Then in the next verse, we find a lackey who will do his bidding. Verse 9, an opportunist. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of, of Yahweh for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Remember, Ahimelech, we saw in the prior chapter, in chapter 21, is the high priest who helped David. And Doeg was there at Nob when the high priest helped David. The name Doeg sounds the way it means. Doeg. The name is an ugly sounding name and it reflects the character of the person who has the name. It's an ugly character that bears the name Doeg. The text is quick to point out that Doeg is an Edomite. The Edomites were the enemies of Israel. Remember, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Esau was an enemy to his brother Isaac, excuse me, to his brother Jacob. And likewise, the, his descendants, the Edomites, are enemies of Israel. 
This Edomite wants to curry favor with the king of Israel. Somehow he's made his way into the court of the king of Israel. And so in order to curry favor, he follows the king's lead. And he begins with calling David the same thing that Saul called him, son of Jesse, right? The, the Edomite here, Doeg, doesn't call David David by his given name. He follows the king's pattern and, and refers to him as son of Jesse in verse 9. And then this enemy of Israel offers up the high priest. He offers up Ahimelech. He says, Ahimelech gave David provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. What's wrong with that statement? There's something fundamentally wrong with that statement. I mean, it's accurate. The words are accurate. But it's what lawyers might call a material omission. I mean, the words are accurate in and of themselves. It's true that Ahimelech helped David with the provisions and with the sword. That's true. But when you omit something that's material, you can change the meaning of something by omitting that. But if you put that thing that you omitted in your statement, it totally changes the meaning. There's something that Doeg has omitted. What he omitted is that the reason Ahimelech helped David is because David told him, I'm here for Saul. I'm on a secret mission for Saul. That's in chapter 21. So Ahimelech thought he was honoring the king. He thought he was honoring Saul. And that's why, well, of course, David, oh, you're on a secret mission for the king? You tell me what you need. You you, you need bread? No problem. You need a sword? No problem. Because I want to honor the king. Doeg leaves that part out, that material omission. Because Doeg wants to curry favor with the king. Doeg has intelligence for King Saul, and he wants the king to know, wow, this is valuable intelligence. Do you know that the high priest is conspiring against you, king? You need to know that, and I'm the man to tell you. Because Doeg is, is presenting to Saul how valuable Doeg is. Because Doeg's an opportunist. Saul attracts opportunists because Saul himself is an opportunist. Doeg leaves out a very important part of the story because Doeg wants Saul to reward him. Keep reading in verse 11. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. This is a very big deal. This is a very big deal. The king summons all the priests at Nob, 85 of them. We'll, know, we'll see that figure in a moment. Plus the entire family of the high priest. Nob isn't far from Gilead, but the idea that the entire priestly class at Gilead, where the tabernacle is, where the place of worship is, the entire priestly class are to be summoned to the king, to stand before the king, to set aside their priestly functions so that they can stand before the king. That's a big deal, and it's a big scene there in verse 11. Verse 12, Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Just like Saul can't refer to David by name, he can't refer to Ahimelech by name. He's so angry that he refers to him as 
son of his father, son of Ahitub. Saul said, now listen, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. Ahimelech is respectful towards the king. He says, here I am, my Adonai, Adoni, in the Hebrew. Right? We've seen before that Adonai means Lord. Now it can mean, you can use it as sir, it can mean Lord, lowercase l, or it can mean the Lord. In this case, you can translate it as here I am sir, or here I am my Lord, you know, lowercase l. That's the, the, that's the term of respect that Ahimelech is using towards the king. Verse 13, Saul then said to him, why have you... And the son of Jesse conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Saul's conspiracy theory consumes him. He repeats his imagined fear that David is conspiring to kill him. And now he has tagged that imagined fear, that conspiracy. He's tagged the conspiracy, the the, the Davidic conspiracy that he's made up in his mind. He's tagged the high priest to that conspiracy. Verse 14, Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Ahimelech comes to the defense. Of David, just like Jonathan did in chapter 20. The high priest tells the king, Lord, lowercase l, Lord, you're mistaken. You're mistaken about David, and he refers to him by name, right? The king doesn't speak David's name. He says, son of Jesse. But Ahimelech, who's defending David, says David, uses his given name. And he, said, he says, in effect, David is honorable and loyal and a valued part of your court. Everybody knew that David had a great reputation. Everybody knew of David's character and David's reputation, except the king, except Saul. By mentioning that David was captain over the king's guard, Ahimelech was effectively saying, look, if David wanted to kill you, he could have done it long, long, long ago. He's in charge of your guard. He's in charge of the Secret Service. Ahimelech, the high priest, is defending God's anointed David. Then in verse 15, the high priest shifts to defend himself. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Ahimelech says, far be it from me. Now, inquiring of God means asking for guidance about something from God. The priest asking for guidance from God on behalf of someone. And so you remember the priest had the urum and the thummim, these, these two objects that would be inside the, the, the breastplate of the high priest. I, I, I hesitate to use this word, but I think it's descriptive. It's like dice. Okay, but don't go to Vegas. Snake eyes. Yeah, that's what the Lord wants me to do. I, 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 you know, I use the word dice because it's a good mental image of something that is thrown on the ground and it rolls a particular way and it produces a result. Now God used the Urim and the Thummim. He instructed the high priest to use those things to reveal God's will. 
so that the high priest would, would, would make a request to God and the, um, the Urim and the Thummim would be used and that would reveal the will of God. That's the high priest. That's in the Mosaic law. That's not for you and me at the gambling location. Okay? So this was a very unique scenario that, that God used and that God instructed for the high priest to reveal the will of God. And, and this is what it means to inquire of God for someone. You can read about how the, how the law had the instruction with respect to the Urim and the Thummim in Exodus 28 or in Numbers 27. Ahimelech is saying, I had no reason to be suspicious about David. I mean, you're saying all these things about David, King, my Lord, lowercase l. I had no reason to be suspicious about David. I've inquired of the Lord for him in the past. It's not like this was the first time he came to me and said, make this inquiry of the Lord on my behalf. I've done it many times in the past, is what the high priest is saying here. Keep reading in verse 15. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Notice how respectful Ahimelech is before the king. Twice he calls himself the servant of the king. He's saying, if I were to put these verses together and paraphrase it, he's saying, I I find it very difficult to believe that, that, that David is conspiring against you to kill you. David is, has a great reputation. David is your son-in-law. David has been faithful to you. David is the, the, the captain of your guard. I find it very difficult to believe. But if it's true that he's part of this conspiracy, I knew nothing about that. I had no knowledge about this at all. Ahimelech makes a very clear and cogent and persuasive argument, and Saul is disinterested in all of it. Saul says, don't bother me with the facts. So he responds to reason with violence. And his hate and jealousy of David devours any semblance of righteousness he has left in his soul. Verse 16, but the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of Yahweh to death because their hand also is with David, and because, they have, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. It is very difficult to overstate the depravity of this order from the king. An order to execute the priests of Yahweh is a direct attack against Yahweh. And this phrase will be used over and over in the in this chapter, to show the gravity of Saul's wickedness. Actually, the king indicts himself by using the phrase, put the priests of Yahweh to death. It's not like we're talking about the the, the priests of Baal, the priests of the pagan gods, like Elijah when when he calls down fire. fire. Remember uh, on on Mount Carmel with with respect to the to the priests of Jezebel, the, the, the pagan priests. And the pagan priests are dancing all around and, and trying to bring fire down, and nothing happens. They're utterly impotent because their gods are no gods. And then Elijah, called, first, he hit, first he says, douse all the wood with, with water, just so there's, there's no question. 
And then he calls fire down, and then, and then those priests are to be killed because they're pagan priests. These are the priests of Yahweh. These are the priests of the living God that the king of Israel orders to be executed. I say again, it is very difficult to overstate the depravity of the king's execution order here. Saul seeks to murder God's anointed. First, to murder the anointed for the kingly function, David, and now to murder the anointed for the priestly function. Ahimelech, the high priest, and his father's house, and for that matter, in other words, all of the priests who are with him. He issues this execution order because the priests do not disclose David's identity. Therefore, they must be aligned with David, not me, the king decides. And they must die because my will is supreme. My will trumps everything else, even God's will. Keep reading in verse 17. But the servants of the king were not, were not willing to put their hands to attack the priests of Yahweh. These men make an honorable yet dangerous decision because what they do is they decide to disobey their king. They decide to disobey their government because their government issues an order that requires them to violate God's law. So they do what the Apostle Peter says in Acts 5, we must obey God and not men. We see in the next verse that not everyone in the king's court is as honorable as these guards. Look at verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Remember, the ephod is a priestly garment. It's it's an elegant, elaborate apron. Now, we think of an apron as, you know, the pasta sauce splattered on it, no big deal. Not the, not the ephod, not this apron. This apron is very sophisticated, and it is a serious, serious symbol of authority with respect to the priestly function. Keep reading in verse 19. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword. This is Doeg, both men and women, children and infants, Also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. Doeg, as the agent of Saul, murdered 85 priests of Yahweh, their wives, their children, their neighbors, their neighbors' wives, their neighbors' children, and even the animals. Saul is like a cartel boss, ruthless and brutal. In chapter 15, Saul defied God's will by refusing to put the enemies of Israel, the Amalekites in that chapter, under the ban. Remember, putting someone under the ban, we studied in the book of Judges, putting a city under the ban was to utterly destroy and annihilate everything that breathed. In chapter 15, God instructed instructed Saul to put the enemies of Israel, the Amalekites, under the ban. Saul disobeyed God. But here in chapter 22, Saul actively attacks God's will. He doesn't just defy it. He attacks God's will by murdering God's people. This surely is a king like all the nations. 
like the people want it. This is a king who not only defies and hates God's will, he kills God's people. Saul has aligned himself with a person that Jesus describes in John 8, 44, the one who was a murderer from the beginning, the one who was a liar. Saul has aligned himself with the devil himself. Look at verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar is the sole survivor, and he realizes that his only shot at safety is with David, so he seeks refuge there. Verse 21, Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of Yahweh. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life, my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. Again, we see why David is exalted in the Bible. David is exalted in the Bible not because he is perfect. He's far from perfect. He's exalted in the Bible because he's a man after the Lord's own heart. And as such, he recognizes when he does wrong. This is an act of humility. When a leader says, ah, that was wrong. I did wrong. And this is what David acknowledges here. He recognizes that his deception of Ahimelech has cost many, many lives. And David assures protection here to the last of the household of these priests, to Abiathar, to the last of, the, of this priestly line, he assures him protection. There's a possibility that based on Mark chapter 2, verse 26, that Abiathar served as co-high priest with his father Ahimelech because of the language in Mark 2, verse 26, where Jesus refers to Abiathar as the high priest during this time period when, when David had gotten the provisions there in Nob. So if they served as co-high priests, or if they didn't serve as, as co-high priests, if Ahimelech was the high priest, either way, now that Ahimelech is dead, Abiathar is the high priest. Now that his father's dead, Abiathar is the high priest. And so what we're seeing here is the providence of God, because God is moving events to debase Saul, to bring him low, because God is opposed to the proud. And he's moving events to elevate David, because God gives grace to the humble. And what, the, the way God is doing that here is he's removing the ministry of the priests from Saul. If you're a priest, how anxious are you to now go minister with Saul? Um, ee. No, I think I'm not that interested in that, Saul. Because that's, that, 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 that's a pretty dangerous occupation. You, you know, maybe you need some, some extra pay, because that's pretty high risk to, to be a priest and minister to Saul. The priests are now with David. The high priest has attached himself to David. Saul is becoming more and more isolated. David has... The seer, Gad, attached to him. We saw last time, 
that, that Gad, the prophet Gad, who's referred to as a seer, that's an ancient name for prophet, and then over the years they started to use prophet instead of seer. But we saw last time that Gad, actually earlier in chapter 22, that Gad ministered to, to David, and at the end of the second book of Samuel, that, that phrase is used that Gad was David's seer. In other words, David had a seer, a prophet attached to him, and now David has the high priest attached to him. The high priest isn't over a knob anymore with the tabernacle. The high priest is part of the motley crew now. He's part of the, 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 the group who is with David. God is moving the chess pieces on the chessboard as God always does. One of the many things that you have to be impressed with God about, one of the many things that is awe-inspiring about God is that God uses even the wrath of man to praise Him. God uses even evil to accomplish His will without compromising His holiness, without becoming even the slightest fraction less holy. He uses evil to execute His will. Of course, He uses good as well. What does Paul say in Romans? Romans 8? He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things includes evil. Even though God is not the author of evil. Even though God is at war with either evil. But God is a God of immeasurable eternal sovereignty and omniscience and omnipotence that He can work and weave events and move the pieces on the chessboard to accomplish His will even though it's evil. And so what we're seeing here in this evil event of grotesque brutality and wickedness by Saul and by his lackey Doeg is we're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. Because prophecy was given early in the book of Samuel, early in 1 Samuel back in chapter 2, where God promised, prophesied, that the house of Eli, who was the high priest then, would be finished. Remember, Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were wicked men. They would have sex with the women who would come to the temple. Hophni and Phinehas were priests, and so they would have sex with the women who would come to the temple. They would steal from God, and God said, I will judge you, Eli, and the, your two sons, because Eli, in effect, condoned them. Eli tolerated it. That's what happens with evil. First you tolerate evil. Eh, it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. You're so intolerant. First you tolerate evil. And then you embrace it. Then you celebrate it. I mean, that's what we, that's what we have in our culture today. And so God, back in chapter 2, issued a prophecy of judgment against the house of Eli because Eli tolerated the evil of his two boys, Hophni and Phinehas. They were men. And God, back in chapter 2, said, I will remove your house. He said he would eliminate Eli's priestly line. Well, here we have the great-grandson of Eli, Abiathar. Ahimelech, his father, was the grandson of Eli. And so Abiathar is the great-grandson of Eli. And what we're seeing here is partial fulfillment of the prophecy in chapter 2, because God has now used the evil event 
of Saul murdering the priests at Nob without condoning it and yet weaving it into his plan to fulfill the prophecy, or at least partially fulfill it, because God has eliminated almost all of the house, all of the priestly line of Eli. There's one left. There's Abiathar. Abiathar is now the high priest. He will be the high priest under David. But under David's son, Solomon, when Solomon becomes king, because Abiathar will align himself with someone who tries to be king instead of Solomon, Solomon will say, you're fired. He won't kill him. He won't execute him because Abiathar was faithful to to his father David. But he will remove him. And so Solomon will be the final fulfillment of the prophecy of judgment that was issued in chapter 2. Here in, in chapter 22, we're seeing partial fulfillment of that, prophe- of that prophecy of judgment from chapter 2. Solomon will replace Abiathar with Zadok, and that will be the end of the fulfillment of chapter 2. You can read about Solomon doing that in 1 Kings 2. Let me close this evening with David's words from Psalm 52. Please turn in there in your Bibles to Psalm 52. David wrote this psalm later in life, and this psalm is a description of the treachery of Doeg. It may also be addressing the wickedness of Saul. It's a psalm of lament. Psalm chapter 52. The psalm begins with a superscript. The superscript is the, is the note that's, that's before verse 1. And you see superscripts in many of the psalms. The superscript reads like this. For the choir director, a maskil of David. Maskil probably means, we're not 100% sure what it means. It probably means something like a contemplative poem. A maskil of David, meaning David wrote this. When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Then we get to the psalm itself, what David wrote, verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. Selah. Selah is a word that, 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 it's, it's one of those words like masco that we're not 100% sure of. We think it's a word of pause. You stop for a second and you consider that. Selah, verse 4. You, David says, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Both Doeg and Saul were deceptive. The words that dripped from their tongues produced death and destruction. And in their arrogance, they actually boasted about what they had done. This is what David is reflecting here in this concept here of boasting. Keep reading in verse 5. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot, uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. Think about it. David had confidence that God would bring justice. God always brings justice. God is not God if he does not bring justice. God is not holy and righteous, and God is a joke. You should make fun of him, mock him, 
do like the world. Put his name in your cuss words. If he is not, I'm not encouraging you to cuss. I, I, I don't mean to suggest that. We should not use unwholesome words, the scripture says. But mock God if he doesn't bring justice. The whole concept of the Bible is predicated on the reality that there is a reckoning. Beginning with chapter 3 of Genesis, the first sin of humanity from thereafter, throughout the text, into the book of Revelation, it is predicated on the reality that God is sovereign. And as the sovereign, he is entitled to judge. This is why we love evolution. This is why the culture loves evolution. Because if we come from monkeys, then there is no reckoning. I do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, and you can't say nothing about it, because who are you to judge me? I don't judge you, you don't judge me, we're all good. Good for you, good for me. Right? That's the cultural approach, because we want to feel comfortable with our sin, and so we minimize the idea that there is a reckoning. But David says here, it's coming. There is judgment. God will bring judgment. There is always a consequence for sin. Sin will not go unanswered, either in this life or in the next. Keep reading in verse 6. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. One of the reasons God brings judgment against evil is so that his name will be vindicated, so that his name will be exalted. Today, the name of God is mocked, like as evidence with people's cuss words, right? I mean, that's why they put the name in the cuss word, because they mock God, because they hate God. And so what David is saying here is that God's name will be vindicated, it will be elevated, and the name of God isn't just G-O-D. It's not just a few letters. The term, the name of God, means his attributes, his characteristics, his essence. This is what David is referring to here in the text, and he's saying that God's people will rejoice in the vindication of God's name a name that has been mocked since Genesis 3. Keep reading in verse 8. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. You see, David says, unlike the evil man whom God will uproot from the land of the living, David says, I'm like a green olive tree. Now, we don't have many green olive trees in the Texas Hill Country. But this is, this, this is, this is a, a description of, of a flourishing, a lush, a thriving tree that is productive, that produces produce and yields its fruit, David says, that me, that's me. Not because I got the big head, not because I think I'm so awesome, but because he calls on the chesed of God. That's the beautiful Hebrew word that we've seen from time to time. Loving kindness, chesed. 
beautiful, beautiful word that is difficult to translate because there's so many dimensions to its beauty. Sometimes it's translated loyal love. Sometimes it's translated covenant love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated mercy. I mean, it's just like a buffet of beautifulness that is that word chesed. And so David says, I exult in the name of God, and I am a productive, beautiful, efficient green olive tree that yields fruit because of the chesed, the loving kindness, the faithfulness, the loyal love, the covenant love, the the mercy of the name of God. David closes the psalm with his faith in God. He says, I will wait on the name of God, meaning I will wait for him to vindicate his name. That's where I put my hope, David says, in the character, in the essence of God, in the nature of God. This is not easy to do. It's not easy to do, to wait on God, right? Our problem is we're in a hurry and he is not. We are to wait on God to trust in Him, that His name, that the hope that we've been putting in His name will, in fact, be legitimate and be vindicated. Because when we hope in His name, we elevate His name. A name that King Saul mocked. A name that Doeg mocked. A name that Washington, D.C. mocks. A name that most public universities, most, that's too, too mild of a word, that the overwhelming majority of public universities in our country mock, that your media mocks. But a name in which we hope, and a name in which we have confidence. The word hope in the scripture is not, oh, hey, I, I, I hope it rains. Hope we get some water in Fredericksburg. We're in a drought. That's not the way hope is used in the Bible. Hope is used with a confident expectation. That's going to happen. It's going to rain. I just don't know when, but it's coming. This is the way David speaks of the name of God, because he's a man after the Lord's own heart, as we should be. Father, we thank you for this time together. We praise you, for you are an awesome God. We praise you, for you are a God to be feared and loved and worshipped. Help us do these things, for we are fallen, broken sinners before you. Give us safe travels home. We pray for our country. We ask that you would give us a revival. We ask that you would protect us from the great darkness and wickedness that seems to thrive so much in our culture. We ask that you would draw us back to you. And if that is not your plan, then we ask that you would strengthen us, give us courage to stand in the face of wickedness and proclaim your name in love for your glory for the ages. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.